Welcome to the Startup Competitors Podcast, where we talk with early stage entrepreneurs to understand what information they use to inform product roadmap, strategy, and market differentiation. Welcome back to work after a holiday week. We hope you had a great Thanksgiving. This week, we're going to feature a rebroadcast. It's going to be Costello with Frank Dale. I chose this one because Costello was recently in the news. They were acquired by Sales Loft a couple of weeks ago. And I'm super hopeful to have Frank on the podcast at some point in the future to maybe talk a little bit about that experience and what happened after we sat down with him when we first recorded this. But I thought a nice way to maybe tee that up would be to play this one. And then I'm sure when things calm down for Frank and his team, I'll reach out to him to, to see if we can get him on. I'm sure that's not going to be anytime soon. But please enjoy the podcast. I really enjoyed recording this one with Frank. And uh, obviously, his hard work and the team's hard work paid off. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we have co-founder and CEO of Costello, Frank Dale. Frank, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. All right, man. Give us the elevator pitch for Costello. Sure. So we get hired by sales teams when the story sounds like this. Their buyer is more educated. And as a result, they know that they have options before they even talk to a salesperson. And so when they agree to talk to somebody in sales, their expectation for that experience is just a lot higher. And if it's not met, they move on quickly. And so in practice, what that means is if the first call is not good, you don't get a second call. And if the second call isn't good, you don't get a third. And so it's it's a challenge. And it's it's challenged for most sales teams today. And I say that because if you look at the data nationally for the last 10 years, the percentage of salespeople hitting their individual quota has gone down. 10 years ago, it was at 65%. Right now, it's at 52%. So you have a lot of people missing their number. And as a result, a lot of companies missing their number. So what every one of my customers wanted to do before they hired us was figure out a way to get all of their reps to run calls in a similar way. Because if you can do that, if you can get reps to take a consistent approach to the way that they sell, uh, the data will tell you that their individual performance goes up by as much as 50%, which is a pretty massive jump. Yeah, They all kind of ran into one challenge, right? They were already doing training. They were already listening to calls. They were already joining, to co- joining sales calls. They were doing pipeline review. But the problem is they couldn't figure out how to get the reps to run calls in a similar way without having that rep sound like they were a robot to the buyer or making that rep feel like they'd taken away their sense of autonomy, which is bad for the rep. And if they sound like a robot, that's bad for the buyer. Um, So that's really where we come in. We get hired because we have software that reps use when they're on the phone to help them take a consistent approach to their calls. But to do it in a way that is human, fluid, and natural, so it's a good experience for the rep, and it's a good experience for the buyer, and it works. And so our software just takes whatever their kind of sales approach or playbook is and gives them a way to execute it in real time on a call, and it drives results, right? So our customers are doing things like reducing their ramp time <laughs> excuse me, by 50%. They're increasing close rates by 94%. They're increasing conversion rates off of things like cold calls from 9% to 40%. So that's what we do. Holy cow. All right. So tons of follow-up questions. One, maybe we'll start here. Can you make that tangible to me as a sales guy from a user experience perspective? When I log into Costello, what do I see? What do I do? Like, what's my experience? Yeah. So as, as a sales guy, let's think about it this way. If you are on a call, whether it's in person or over the phone, 
you have a multitasking problem. You're trying to do three things at once. I need to be present for the other person because I need to listen to them and I need to listen actively. I need to remember the right questions to ask. And those questions are going to kind of triage in and out like if then statements. And I'll give you an example. So one of our earliest customers was this company called Sigster. They do email signature marketing software. One of their questions is always, do you use Gmail or do you use Outlook? If you tell me Gmail, I'm going to ask one set of questions. If you tell me Outlook, I'm going to ask a different set of questions. Later on in their call, they'll say, hey, which marketing initiatives are important to you today? And if you said, hey, capturing more email addresses matters to me, that brings up a different set of questions. If you say, you know, increasing loyalty activation, that brings up another set of questions. And so all throughout that sales call, there are tons of these if-then statements that are happening that the salesperson has to do in their head. And so for any given sale, you could have 30 to 90 to 100 different questions that could be the right question at any given point in time. And you're trying to juggle that in your head, whether you realize it or not, while you're listening to the other person. And at the same time, you're doing those two things, you're supposed to be taking notes. So that's just a lot to ask. And so what happens is we naturally get into a call, we start talking, and it's really easy to accidentally forget things that you should ask. And those things are often the things that cost you the deal, because had you asked it, you would have uncovered the thing that you needed to know to properly position what you do. So our job is during that call to give you a co-pilot or an assistant. So you're going to have our software up in front of you on the screen. It's going to have your playbook, but it's only going to show you what you need to see when you need to see it. You don't need to see all 90 questions. You just need to see the stuff that's relevant right then. And if somebody gives you an objection, we have we give you a way to get to the answer immediately on the spot. If they mention something and you know there's a customer story, but you can't remember the right one, we give you the ability to pull that up. And then we bring all of that into line with the ability to take simple and easy notes so that at the end of the call, you hit sync. We take all your notes. We push them to the appropriate places in the CRM for you. So now it's all captured, not just the stuff that used to make it into your notebook. And then we'll give you and the company data on what's happening so you understand which questions matter in the sales process, what determines if you're going to move somebody forward or not, so you can improve as you go. So if I'm a rep, it's all about those things. And then what types of, if you can answer this, what types of industries have you guys had luck with when you look at your customers today? Who are they? Yeah. So it's been interesting. We've gotten into some industries I would not have expected this early. I would have told you coming into it, tech companies adopt software the fastest. They're my early adopters. And and they are. Like most of my customers, we have 40 today, are software companies. And they're they're people that most people would know. It's like Workfront or Sales Loft or ZipWhip or Dachshund. Right, Sales Loft. Yeah, they're great. Yeah. They're one of our customers. I love them. We use their, their software as well. So those ones are obvious. The ones that are less obvious, we work with a company called 3BG Supply. They sell ball bearings. Um, we work with a company called Guest Supply. They're a division of Cisco Foods, which is a Fortune 50 company. Yeah. Guest Supply calls hotels and resorts. They sell toilet paper. They sell eco cleaning services. They sell you know other toiletries. You know they have like 50 or 60 products that they sell. And the problem we solve for those people is they have a lot of stuff to talk about when they're on the phone. And you may mention one particular product line and it's very easy to forget that, hey, if they talk about this, I should also bring up this other product line because those probably go together. So really our our core use case is just a sales use case. Do you have to ask questions? Is it more than a one call close unless it's a cold call and we're great for those? 
Uh, and do you need to run it in a consistent way? Because if you don't and your, your customer expects, you know, a high level interaction, you know, and that's going to cause trouble, then we're a good fit. Awesome. For somebody who's listening to help place you on your journey, can you give any kind of vanity metrics around where you guys are? Yeah. So 40 customers today, $3 million in venture capital raised. So we raised a million dollars when we started the company. Uh, we did that off of four sales contracts. So we had not built the product yet. Uh, we raised another $2 million earlier this year. So that would have been in June of 2018. That was our seed round. And that kind of brings us to where we're at now. Congratulations, by the way. Yeah, thank you. And you know, on the customer side, we land and expand. So we have literally 120% retention rate in dollars. So everywhere we go, we expand. If we start with one, one part of the sales process, so the account exec team, if they have SDRs or BDRs, we pick up the BDRs. If we start with the BDRs and SDRs, we get the, the account execs. And then at my earliest customers, the client success or customer success people are now starting to use us as well. So when you think of competitors for Casello, what comes to mind? What do you think of? Yeah, that's a good question. We probably have one direct competitor, but they're also early in the journey. And so we really don't run into them. Uh, it's a company called Dooley. Uh, they're out of Vancouver. I've met their founder. Nice guy. Our real competitor is status quo, right? Um, we, we literally never run into this other company. We just know they exist. Status quo for us, and I'm happy to tell you uh, how we arrived at that. It's it's however you are trying to solve this inefficiently today, this how do I run better sales calls problem. So most of my customers, like at Workfront, they had paid a consultant a fair amount of money for a sales playbook. Uh, that thing is like 120 pages. It's a PDF. It's beautiful. You can't use it in real time, right? right? And so they took that content and they give it to us to use in real time. At Amplify, who was customer number one, they had Google Docs. It was two pages of questions. Not really great to be used in real time because you may have to bounce around that doc to get to the stuff that you need. And in bouncing around, you will invariably miss questions that you need to ask. So it's not uncommon in their sales call. You might have gone from question three to question 12 to 18 and back to two. It's really easy to get lost. At other companies, we, we're replacing post-it notes, which are all over the rep screens. <laughs> and, you know, in some cases, at Valley Mail. That would uh, be me, San, by the way. Yeah, right? That's most people. That's how we had to do it before we had our product. Uh, at Valley Mail, they had notebooks on their desk, right? Reps had this kind of multitasking problem during the call, and they were having to create their own solutions at most of these places. You know, by the way, Salesforce doesn't use their own product when they're on the phone. I know this because I interviewed their reps. They make Google Docs and they use their own Google Docs, so which is probably not great for them. This is a problem that most businesses have. Right. They may not be aware of it, but they've got. So if you're if you're competing against another company or if you're displacing an existing product, oftentimes counterintuitively the the migration path to start to start to use your product is much easier, right? Because people have already ingrained in their head. You know, we, we have a solution that does this, like switching CRM solutions, right? It doesn't, at this point, it probably doesn't matter what CRM solution you use. Yeah. They're, they're, they all kind of scratch an itch in a different way. But when you're going into a company, if they don't have a structure for doing this today, if it's Post-it Notes and Google Docs, how much of what you're doing, like, do you guys have to coach them or teach them how to be effective? Like, if they've never done this, I feel like you're, like, training them in, like, how to be a more effective sales team. Is that true? Or yeah, There's some truth to that. Like, at it, some places, it's definitely not true. So, like, Sales Loft is a great example. That is a 
awesome company. They're growing really, really fast. They have an amazing sales enablement leader. They have all of this documented. They just have a great way to execute it on the fly. Work front, same situation. It's documented. You just didn't have a way to, to execute it on the fly. At other companies, it's in somebody's head. And what we found across every one of these customers is the patterns are pretty much the same. The, there are only three or four different ways to run a cold call. There are only a couple of different ways to actually run a discovery call, right? So like, for, let's take a discovery call. There's an open, hey, great to meet you today, Mike. Uh, I've got us on the calendar for an hour. Is that still good for you? Yes? Okay, great. I know I have some things I want to cover today, but what are your top two or three things you want to get out of this call, right? So let's get the agenda. After that, you're going to ask some high-level context questions. Then you're going to go into discovery. Those are the, the parts of the call that will be the most unique from customer to customer because it's where you're asking questions specifically right. related to what you do. Even then, the patterns generally are the same. You start broad and get more narrow. Then at the end of the call, after you've either demonstrated the product or done some kind of presentation, if that's what makes sense for that call, you're going to ask about next steps in the decision-making process. Those questions are fairly universal from company to company. And so once you see that pattern, we can provide templates to our customers now. They'll go in and they'll customize them, but it kind of gets them up to speed a lot faster. But it, I mean, it took us a while to get to that point. That wasn't like a day one thing for us. Our hypothesis coming into the business is that that would be the case, and it has been. But it's taken us a little bit of time to figure out, hey, what's the best way to enable a customer to get started? Have you found particular complementary products in the market that you end up integrating with more often than not? And the follow-up question to that would be, is there a channel strategy there to co-sell with those other products? So talk, you're not, yes. Talk a little yeah. bit about that. Yeah, for sure. So out of the box, we started integrating with Salesforce because we know the reps need the data to go there. The companies needed the data to go there. And then we integrated with HubSpot uh, because we had people asking us to integrate with that CRM. So we did it. We integrate now with Slack because some sales teams want to see copies of the notes go there as well, just so the manager can kind of know what's going on and not have to constantly ping the rep. So it's just an easy check the box exercise for the rep. And then now they're not answering, you know, 10 requests a day for notes about XYZ customer. So those were right out of the box. But if we look at like products that are highly complementary to us, not including the ones that I've mentioned so SalesLoft is a great example. They're one of our customers. They're a Cadence product. If you hire SalesLoft or one of their competitors, and for people on the, the podcast today that may not know what they do, if you hire a company like SalesLoft, you're doing it to make outreach to your potential customers more effective and more efficient because they provide an integrated solution that provides VoIP, so telephony, plus the ability to email people on a Cadence. So think... I would load Mike's contact information in because I think he's a fit for our product. And it would allow me in a sequence of events to call him on day one. On day three, it will have me send an email. On day four, I call again. And it gives me analytics about all of those things. So if you think about that product, that product's job is to get you to a conversation with Mike. Once that conversation happens, it's back to the Wild West at most companies. And that's really where we pick up. When you start to talk to somebody, that's where we're going to pick up. So our products are very complementary. It's why we use their product and it's why they use our product. And we're actually building an integration with them right now so that if I'm running Sales Loft and I'm going to have a conversation, you can literally run my product inside of their product. So it's just an integrated solution. 
other products that tend to work very well with us. If you're using like a, a AI call recording platform, a lot of my customers will use Gong or Chorus. I was going to ask you. Oh, yeah. So like, okay. you know, if you think about like you go to the Gong website today, you will find Amplify as a customer testimonial video on there. You'll find Formstack as a customer testimonial video on there. They both use Gong. When they get insights from Gong, they put them into my platform. So the salesperson can now execute on those insights going forward. So those are all really complimentary products for us. Dude, that's awesome. This episode is brought to you by Full Stack PEO. Most founders start companies because they figured out a better way to solve a problem or serve a need, not because they love tracking payroll, filling out compliance forms, and explaining employee benefits packages. And yet, all that stuff still has to be done. That's why there's Full Stack PEO. Full Stack PEO specializes in turnkey HR for emerging companies, not just those core services, but advice and expertise that help founders maximize employee potential. Curious? Find out more at fullstackpeo.com. You and I have a background. I know you're a bit of a product guy. Product roadmaps and value props are your thing. So I'd love a little bit around like the vision for where you think Costello is going. And then probably more importantly, like what are the inputs into that vision? How do you, how did you get there? And how do you like, what are the drivers to that vision in, in terms of the next maybe three to five years? And where you, what do you think is going to drive the next iteration of the platform and the features that you build and things like that? Yeah, that's a great question. So this is going to be long. So I'm sitting back. Feel, feel free to stop me with questions. So I, everything, if I look at my work history, everything that I do is motivated by one simple thing, right? Like I am personally motivated by helping people be more successful at work and happier at work. Like that, that motivates me. So for this company, the way that we're doing it is we're living that by helping them just have better conversations with their customers, like conversations that are better for the customer and they're better for the salesperson. But let's back up. And it's probably important to talk about how I got to starting this company because that's going to tell you how we develop product today. So as Mike knows, so I know Mike, we both believe in customer development. We both believe in being close to the customer and in taking risk out of the business by being close to the customer. So prior to starting this business, I knew I was going to start something and I wasn't sure what. So I was looking at different markets to find one that was going to be interesting to me. As part of that exercise, I at the time and still have a long run belief that you won't eventually design interfaces for humans without understanding neuroscience because you're designing software um, to be used by a human. And if you're doing that, you should understand how they, they like to receive and use information. So I was literally reading neuroscience textbooks, um, journal articles, you name it, thinking at the time I was going to go build something for productivity, which is something that I care about and Mike also cares a lot about. In the midst of that, I've been asked to do some go-to-market consulting by a nonprofit here called TechPoint for some early-stage technology companies. And as I was doing that, I kept hearing from the sales leaders, hey, my salespeople are struggling when they're on the phone. This buyer is, they're smarter, they expect more, and they're struggling. And I thought that sounded interesting because when I'd started my career, I'd started in sales before going into marketing and then getting time in product. So I said, you know what? This kind of resonates me with me, but I want to see if anybody else actually has this problem because the worst thing you can do is build something that no one wants and no one loves. I mean, if, 
if you build something that no one will pay you for, it's, it's a hobby. It's not a business, right. right? So I called a couple of sales leaders I know. One of the first ones I called was a guy named Scott Wazinski, who had taken Exact Target, which is a big company here in Indianapolis, from $10 million in revenue to $110 million in revenue. So he's very good. And I said, hey, Scott, uh, I'm kind of hearing that people are, they have reps that are struggling on the phone. I've read some research that would say if you can prep them, and it's, it's a concept called perspective taking in psychology, just to think about the interests and motivations of the other person, they're far more likely to be successful in this call. What if I created this interface to prep them? What would you think about that? And he said, you know, I like this idea, but my big problem is I can't get them to consistently ask the eight or nine questions they should be asking on every first call. I'm like, talk to me about that. He's like, I don't know what it is. They just, I coach them when I coach them. In some cases, they're younger. They're not sure to have a sales call. A lot of the millennials have grown up texting. They're not used to doing stuff over the phone. And at a certain point, you have to take it to the phone. I spend a lot of my day coaching there. And I thought, you know, that sounds interesting. Then I called another friend of mine, the first sales leader I had worked for, a guy named Simon Mutlu, who is now a sales leader at Slack. I heard the same thing. And I said, well, you know, this is kind of interesting. I have two pads to test now. So then I went and I met Max Yoder, who I'd worked with at Compendium, who's the CEO of Lex- Lesson Lee. I heard the same thing again. He said, actually, if you could tell me that we went from asking this important question 30% of the time to 60% of the time, I'd pay you for that tomorrow. I said, you know what? There's probably something here, but I want to validate that. Yeah. So I literally went out and did 40 hours of interviews. So I put an interview guide together and I said, hey, who's probably going to be the customer here? Well, the end user is obviously the salesperson, but generally their end users don't always buy software. So I, I need to talk to the managers because anything they use, the manager is going to want to input on and it's going to impact them. If I talk to the managers, I have to talk to the VP because the VP is the economic buyer. And so my software probably to get bought has to deliver value to all three of those people for it to be useful for the company because they're going to get calls from 80 other businesses selling 80 other things who all want the same budget. So I did 40 hours of interviews and I talked to big companies. So literally Salesforce, Oracle, and Adobe. And that's why I know the reps at Salesforce use Google Docs, whether the managers know it or not, they do. And I talked to small and in some cases, no longer small companies. So Sigster and Amplify were in my initial set and their customers. And they were not as big as they are now when I talked to them. Right. And at every one of these companies, step one with the interview process was only talk about the problem. Don't sell. Talk about the problem because I can't make up the problem. You have to have it or it's not a business. And so I kept hearing the same problem over and over again. And at about the midway point, I thought, okay, what if I go and watch the sales teams work? And so I went back to some of these companies and said, can I watch you? make some calls, which is a strange request, but some of them said, yes, sure. So I would sit in the back of their office with a notepad and I would watch. And what I noticed at every one of these places was that the reps would have screens covered with post-it notes, or they would have a Google doc up or an Evernote template out, or they'd have a notebook on their desk. And so I would ask very simple product development questions. Hey, I've noticed that you've got this post-it note up there. How do you use that on the call? Because it looks like you're looking at it. And they'd say, well, I always forget to ask about next steps. I'm trying to remind myself. Or I would ask, hey, I've noticed you get this Google Doc. Where did that come from? In some cases, they'd be like, my boss made it, which is what they did at Amplify. Yeah. At Salesforce, they're like, I made it. Great. What do you use that for? Well, 
I know that there are certain things I got to hit on the call and that I've also included bullet points for this customer story I like to tell. So I use it. So I thought that was interesting. They were solving a multitasking problem. They just wouldn't articulate it that way. But what was interesting is that every one of these companies, because the reps were using those things when they were on the phone, they were taking notes in them. And because no one wants to do double data entry, a tenth of what got captured in those things (laughs) made it back to the CRM platform. So if I'm a manager now, all I'm seeing about these deals are like close date, maybe the estimated close amount, and if I'm lucky, next steps. What I would actually need to know if that deal was any good was of the 10 things I have to know to build our business case, what do we actually know, right? And I'll give you a real world example of this problem. So as Mike knows, I used to be the CEO of a company here called Compendium. It got acquired by Oracle. I remember at one point in that business, we were selling to Bass Pro Shops. We were selling to Cabela's, which are now the same company at the time. We're not the same company. So I look in our Salesforce instance. I'm getting prepped to go meet with our founder, an amazing guy by the name of Chris Baggett. And if I look in Salesforce, I notice that these these deals are both at 90% likelihood of closing for almost the same amount within two weeks of each other. And at first, I'm excited, but then I start to think about it. I'm like, you know, that sounds impossible. (laughs) So I go and I talk to the reps. And what I find out is in our Bass Pro Shops deal, if we had to know 10 things, we knew eight of them, and we were pretty buttoned up, and we, in fact, got that deal. If we go to the Cabela's deal, if we needed to know 10, we knew two, but they just had a really pleasant conversation, and it was kind of like the other deal. So, of course, it was going to close. So, of course, we didn't close that deal until far, far later, right? But imagine me going to like a board meeting and putting that pipeline up in front of our, right. our board and saying, yeah, we're getting both of these deals within the quarter. That's not going to go well for me, right? right. And, and so that problem replicates all over every one of these companies because the reps don't have the thing that they actually need during the call to one, run the call the way they want to consistently to service their their assistant and their co-pilot, but then two, capture the data in a way that a human would on a call and get it back to them. And by the way, the other thing that emerges when you look into this market is CRM should have been built to do this a long time ago. And the reason that it wasn't is the initial paradigm for that business was just digitizing a digital, a di- like a physical Rolodex. So for those of you that are young, 30 years ago or so, people had these things called Rolodexes on their desk. And what it was, was like this card file that would rotate and it would have like the name of a prospect or a customer and a phone number and maybe a bullet point to our our notes. Well, when the first CRM platforms were built, they just took that and made those, those fields into digital fields. And that was it because most salespeople at the time didn't sell things over the phone. They either got in a plane or got in a car and then they went and talked to somebody. It wasn't until much later that most products got sold you know, remotely, right? And if you look at like GoToMeeting, WebEx, you name it, so many sales calls today are happening virtually in a way that they never would before. But these platforms have never been built to adjust to that reality. And so what they still are today, and they're great for what they are, right? They're the database of record for the enterprise. They're just a bunch of form fields. So reps don't use them when they're on the phone and they don't like using them because they're not built to match their workflow, right? So at this point in my interview process, once I understood this stuff, I bought balsamic mockups. Anybody can use that. It's like 60 bucks. I mocked up an interface. I went back to these companies and I said, hey, I'd like to just share the way you have described this challenge to me. 
And I would share it. And they would say, that's right. And the important thing is they have to say, that's right. You don't want to sell to them at this point. And then I would say, hey, here's kind of what I'm thinking. And then I would show them the interface. And the point in doing that is to get feedback because what you'll find is most humans in the abstract can't visualize a product. But if you show them the product, they can give you pretty wonderful feedback. And so the point here is still not to sell. So you get the product in front of them and they would give me feedback and they'd be like, oh, you know what? And that button is probably a call timer. And I'd be like, call timer, tell me about that. Okay, great. You're building my roadmap. So I would keep doing that. And then I would adjust the interface after every meeting. And I kept doing it until companies kept saying, I want to buy this from you. When can I have this? And keep in mind, balsamic mockups looks hand-drawn. So this does not... This does not look great. And there are some advantages to that because I think it gives the other person license to feel like they can give you feedback. So at that point, I had met my co-founder during this interview process. He had just moved back to Indianapolis with his family. He had been the CEO of a company in New York that had two kids. He and his wife were ready to come back to the Midwest. Prior to being the CEO, CEO at Signpost, he had run the national sales team as the sales ops guy at a big company. He understood my problem. We had hit it off during the interview process. I got to know him over this eight-month period, recruited him to join me, recruited our VP of engineering, went back to four companies with a slightly nicer PowerPoint deck, pre-sold the product to them. So these weren't letters of intent. I literally sold it to them. They signed contracts. I turned it on. You pay me. Then I went to investors, raised a million dollars in venture capital to start the company because now I have four customers, Right. started the company, intentionally only worked with those four companies until like August. So we raised that first round in February of 2017, started building in March. In April, created a terrible version of the product just to test the UX, iterated, iterated, iterated until everyone at that company would use the product and they liked it and they used it on a daily basis. And then we started selling to new people. And so our, our, our methodology today is be close to the customer, right? We still talk to them. We still mock things up and take it to them. We still observe them. We don't build things without talking to them. Uh, We just added chat into our interface so they can have a direct line to us. We have product analytics. Your customer can't fully build the roadmap. It's your job to see around corners and think about where you're going. But our goal is to be closer to the customer than anyone else, because if we do that, we're going to win. So probably the one of the most difficult things I heard in there was, and you said it at least three times, You don't want to sell to them at this point, which is like insanely hard, right? So like talk a little bit about how do you, like, do you have, and you're, you're probably a little bit more laid back and self-controlled than I am. Discipline might be the (laughs) word there. So you're, you're pretty disciplined, but any tips or tricks for how you held yourself accountable to that, that, that you wouldn't walk into Amplify or whoever and be like, Hey, you know, I'm super excited. I think I solved it. Right. But, but really go in with more of a, like, I have something to show you. I have no idea if I solved it. You know, I'd love for you to help me put this together. Like, well, like, how do you do that consistently, especially for something that you you're starting to care deeply about one would conceive, right? Like for sure. Yeah, it, it is. It is so hard, but I, I think you hit it right. It's the way you start the conversation. Hey, I'm not sure if this is right or not. What I'm hoping you will tell me is what I need to change. So I'm going to describe this. And what I'm hoping you'll do is tell me what about this needs to change. And that question is important, right? If I said, what, what do you like? 
you're going to tell me what you like, or you're going to tell me what you think you you want me to hear to make me happy. But if I phrase it as, what should change about this? The question automatically implies, I know things need to change, and I'm going to make it easier for you to tell me the truth. And let's take a simple example. So if you're managing somebody and you want feedback on them and you're their boss, what you don't say is, what do you think about this? Because what you're going to hear most of the time from most people is, it's great. What you say is, what would you change about this? And if it is great, they'll just say, no, it's great. Don't change anything. Right. If something needs to change, they'll say, yeah, I'm not sure that that, that particular paragraph makes a lot of sense. I, I don't understand that. We should probably fix that. And that's really what you want. So it is hard, but a lot of it is in how you frame the conversation. Because remember, the whole point of doing the initial process like that is early on, it's going to be hard enough anyway when you're taking a new concept to market. You need to bring something to market that people already have a problem for or you're going to fail, right? You're going to fail. It's going to be hard. Like we have 40 customers. We've still had to work even with this process right. to get there. If I'm having to convince you to like something and you're trying to make me happy, that's not indicative of other people liking it later on. So what, what should discipline you is fear of failure. Because if you don't do it that way, you're just adding more risk to something that's already going to be challenging. How long do you think it is before you start to see more competition in the space? At what point do you start to see fast followers and uh, what's the strategy to stay out in front of them? Yeah. So, well, the strategy is always understand and serve the customer better than anyone else, right? That's always got to be number one. And I don't care what business you're in. If that's not the number one strategy, you're not going to be number one. Now, beyond that, I, I would tell you two things. I think we started this business in an interesting moment. Uh, have we started it six years ago, there would be more fast followers. I think right now there is, in, you know, listen, we're building some machine learning stuff into our platform. But have we started it six years ago, there'd be more fast followers. Starting today, there's so much hype right now around machine learning and AI, which You're in many cases- You're need salespeople. Yeah, right? So there's, there's that. And then, you know, if I look at, like Gong, which is a great product, or Chorus, which is a, is a great product. What I'm seeing is there's a ton of small competitors already in the, I'm going to record and use AI to transcribe. And the transcription is still not great, but they're working on it. Transcribe sales calls and then provide analysis space. My bet is, at least for the first two companies I mentioned and some others in the space, when they were pitching investors, the pitch was, I'm going to provide real-time guidance. I'm sure of it. I know that they used to use that language and that language went away really fast because it turns out just doing what they're doing right now is really, really hard. But because almost anyone can use like the Google Voice Cloud platform, it's pretty cheap and you can build on top of that. And so most of those companies have I think Chorus, to my knowledge, is the only one that's completely custom. I could be wrong about that. You know, most companies are jumping on that train because it's tr it's trendy right now. And you're building on top of these other platforms. So I think that's one reason that I don't have a ton of fast followers. I also think the other reason is, to my knowledge, none of those companies did what I did. Like if you go out and you do the firsthand observation, you start to pick up on stuff that other people won't. Right. I, I can guarantee you no one else in this space did that. And I know that because I've met a bunch of founders doing complimentary things. And I'm the only one I've talked to so far that did 40 hours of interviews. 
right? And then went out and did all of that observation. So it's when you do that, you go firsthand and see the customer, you pick up on stuff. So in some respects, listen, what we do is actually from a data model standpoint, really complicated. We make it look really simple because you have to for the end user. Right. And that's a strength and a weakness for this business because when you see the interface, while it's pretty and it works amazingly, it looks simple, right? And so to some degree that can hurt us every now and then in the sales process, or it could certainly hurt us with investors who are like, well, it's all going to be AI and the salesperson's going to go away. But the reality is we're cutting ramp times by 50%. We're helping people increase close rates by 94%. We are helping them increase cold call conversions from 9% to 40%. It works because we went out, we, we did a better job of understanding the problem, right? In you got to do the firsthand observational stuff to do it. So it's it's the less trendy way to do it. It just happens to be the right way to do it. All right, dude, we're way over time. So I'm going to call time to desk, but we are definitely doing a, a part two. Like I would yeah. love to, to, to keep this conversation going if you're open to it. Love to. If people want to learn more about the product or get a hold of you, how do they do that? Yeah, so easy to find on Twitter, just Frank C. Dale or, you know, Frank at Ann Costello. Dot com so a n d c o s t e l l o dot com that's my email address either of those work awesome thank you so much yep thanks for having me if you're thinking of launching a SaaS product startup competitors can provide data on your closest competitors survey potential users or provide other product validation services learn more at startupcompetitors.com. dot